we've seen a, a situation arise in which the world has lost the ability to come together to cooperate on shared challenges. And that has been increasing over recent years, but really accelerated with the Trump presidency. And at the very moment at which, in the middle of a global pandemic, the world has never needed to come together more, there's been a breaking apart. Welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with my colleagues, Helen Mountfield and Murray Hunt. Some legal podcasts might try and strive for political neutrality, but this pod is brought to you by international human rights lawyers dedicated to the rule of law and international multilateralism. And so when it comes to the Trump versus Biden election, we are anything but neutral. The rule of law doesn't thrive on chaos and hatred. It flourishes on appreciation of the dignity of every human being. And thus, it is a huge relief to start this podcast by saying out loud, Biden won. And you know what? It's even more pleasure to say out loud, Trump lost. Now, we don't want to just dwell on the glories of the last few days. What we want to do is to look forward and we want to discuss not simply the legal challenges in the US ahead, but what rebuilding multilateralism, which is hopefully task number one for the Biden presidency, what that looks like and what the UK role in that rebuilding should be. And we're honoured to have with us to discuss these issues today the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy. Lisa is MP for Wigan, and before that, in contrast to many parliamentarians, actually had proper jobs in human rights. She worked at Centrepoint and at the Trojan Society, and on entering Parliament, she set up the All-Party Group on International Corporate Responsibility. Lisa, thank you um, so much for joining us. Can I start really with two questions wrapped into one? So from the international perspective, what's concerned you most about the past four years of the Trump administration? And what are the areas you'd like to see prioritised by the new Biden administration and his new Secretary of State? Um, I mean, it's a big question. Uh, (laughs) Lots to to say. But I think the the thing that is really apparent is that we've seen... uh, a situation arise in which the world has lost the ability to come together to cooperate on shared challenges. And that has been increasing over recent years, but really accelerated with the Trump presidency. And at the very moment at which, in the middle of a global pandemic, the world has never needed to come together more, there's been a breaking apart, whether it's the attacks on the World Health Organization, the scapegoating of migrants in many countries, the the rush to close borders, which, you know, for public health reasons made sense, but obviously play into all sorts of insecurities and fears around the world. And... um, Through all of that, you've had a very, very toxic political global situation, particularly with the ramping up of tensions between the US and China, so that when we speak to, um, as 
Jonathan Ashworth and Keir Starmer and I often do, global uh, researchers, medical scientific researchers, they say that cooperation is far more difficult across borders now than it's ever been. Um, and that geopolitical situation has a knock-on effect on their ability to cooperate in the search for a vaccine, treatments, diagnostics, and so on. COVID has thrown all of this into sharp relief, but it's not the cause of it. The cause of it is a, a, a US president who has stepped out of that global leadership role that America has traditionally shown. Um, and be beyond that, actually, a shift in public opinion in the United States that very much supports that approach. We've seen some of those trends developing in the United Kingdom as well. And I think there is a huge amount of work to do now that we've got the victory for President Biden. There's a huge amount of work to do on both sides of the Atlantic to start repairing some of that damage and also to build the case for progressive international cooperation. Um, I think if Brexit shows anything, it shows that you've got to take people with you um, and what you do globally has to be rooted in consent at home. So it's a kind of, you know, the challenge starts now rather than ends now, really, is my sense of the situation. So if President Biden and... Oh just reflect on how nice it is to say that. If President Biden is going to be um, bringing in a new era of multilateralism, has he not got to bring it back better and think about how you protect it from this kind of era of demagogues um, in the way that we've seen both in the States and in other countries uh, across the world? And if so, what does building back multilateralism better look like? Um so I think we've actually um, commissioned a review of this that's led by Ray Collins, who is our lead on foreign affairs in the House of Lords, looking specifically at the role of the UN, uh, which we remain committed to. But I think it's fair to say that the UN hasn't delivered uh, the sort of results that we need. Samantha Power, who was the US's uh, ambassador to the UN under President Obama, said recently it's really hard to think of the last time that the world was able to come together behind a lead negotiator and start to solve some of the long-running conflicts like Syria, which has now been raging for longer than World War II, um, and that we've got to rediscover that ability again. So we're looking very much at what the future of uh, multilateralism would look like, and it's something that the Biden administration has also been quite keen to explore. There are, you know, I don't want to preempt the outcome of, of Ray's review, but there are a number of things that are of concern to us. I mean, one is how priorities are set. Um, and we're very, we've been reaching out to civil society um, and trade union movements across the world to try to see how we can drive those priorities much more from the ground up. Um, also, to, how do you deal with kind of you know, what, what are usually called rogue states. Um, although, given the actions of the government recently in relation to the Internal Market Bill, I think we might be classed as one of those by many countries now. But, you know, how do you deal with Russia, for example, and other countries that just do not play by the rules and do not observe the law? Um, but in the end, the answer is more cooperation, not less. And, it, you know, if you look at the way that Theresa May responded to the use of chemical weapons on the streets of the UK, in the Scripple attack, she went straight to partners, friends, allies in the European Union to ask for support and found it. So the answer is more cooperation, not less. I mean, multilateralism um, 
and the role that the US has historically played pre-Trump in multilateralism and bringing people together um, has been central. But one of the takes of the last four years for some people, and it's something we've had echoed in lots of conversations we've had with people from all over the globe during the, during this pod series, is that this might be a kind of a watershed moment in which um, we see the decline of the US as the predominant power and the rise of China. I mean, what's your take on that? And what are the implications of that? And not least from the kind of a human rights concern of China becoming either an equal or the predominant superpower. I mean, I think there's no question that the world is struggling to work out how to respond to the rise of China and an increasingly assertive China on the global sphere. Um, And there's a particular problem for Britain in relation to this, which I think was demonstrated quite well during the Huawei debacle, where Britain ended up squeezed between two global superpowers and caught up in a, you know, what is essentially a trade war with pretty depressing effects for our security, for our economy, for our digital infrastructure. I think the lesson of of that really is that um, a Biden administration is not going to uh, be a game changer in terms of changing the approach to China. I think it will become much more predictable, much more rational in terms of how the US behaves. But I think those underlying tensions will remain. And so Britain has to have a strategy about China. At the moment, if you look from one government department to another, the approach is deeply confused. You've got the the culture, media and sport department um, uh, saying that they uh, want to cut out the role of or reduce the role of uh, Chinese-backed firms in our um, in our 5G infrastructure. But then if you look over at the Bayes department, they're still considering whether to give a big role to Chinese-backed firms in our nuclear technology. The Foreign Office has pushed back very heavily against the role of the Chinese government in Hong Kong, but yet the Treasury is looking very much to the Chinese government for investment to rebuild post-COVID. We just haven't got a strategy at home or abroad for how you deal with China. And I think the answer lies in uh, far more strategic independence, um, investing in our homegrown technologies, working with other key allies to pool those technologies in order to provide us with alternatives. And with that that then that strategic independence then gives us the ability to have a level of constructive engagement with China, but in terms of defending our own values and interests. COP26 is coming up next year. Climate change is obviously a major pressing priority that has to be dealt with. There's no global challenge that can be um, that can be managed without the engagement of the Chinese government. But in order to get China to work with us on those challenges, we need to have a much more independence in the relationship. And what about the UK's role in creating this new world? I mean, do we need to kind of be slightly more realistic than we have been in the past about our influence? I mean, if at the next election you become foreign secretary, we're going to be years out of the EU. We're unlikely to be enjoying a special relationship with the US if we, many people say we haven't had one anyway since Yalta. Um, what what influence are we realistically going to have in shaping world events? I mean, I would just put, sort of push back against that sentiment, really, because I think the UK is strategically extremely well-placed to play 
a global leadership role again and could be doing so now if we had a different approach. You know, we've got a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. We're members of the G7, the G20. I've been astonished, actually, since I was appointed to this post in April, just the willingness and the eagerness of world leaders to see Britain play that role again. We have huge historical ties around the globe. The problem really is that we're we're relying on those historical relationships for for the special relationship with the US, which hasn't really produced any results under the Trump presidency. We're relying on those in the Commonwealth. We're relying on those um, for almost every strategic relationship that we're trying to have. And what we haven't thought through is what we want out of those partnerships and relationships. So if you look at France and Germany, for example, it's absolutely clear what they want out of the relationship with the United States, that for France, it's about national security, it's about military cooperation. For Germany, it's about technology and academic exchanges. For Britain, it's not at all clear what we want from that relationship until we have some kind of vision for the role that we want to play in the world and how we're going to advance our interests. We're just not going to see 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 that bear fruit and that's this is the moment where the uk government could have a reset and start to put some meat on the bones of global britain start to repair some of those alliances around the world um but will they that is a very good question murray Lisa, we saw um, speech after speech last night in the House of Lords bemoaning the damage that the UK internal market but is doing to the UK's international reputation. So I'm really interested in, in your views about how how damaging that is and what, what is the most serious damage that's being done by the government's apparent determination to reinsert the clauses that the Lords took out last night. Um, I've, I've listened to Dominic Raab on this say that he's not had anybody raise concerns with him about it. And I just find that fairly extraordinary because in the meetings that we have regularly with foreign ministers and ambassadors, it's been raised by everybody. I think there's just a general sort of bewilderment about what on earth is happening in Britain. And of course, for the Democrats in the US, because of the potential implications for the Good Friday Agreement, this really has been a major barrier to better relationships between the UK and the US. So I think there's no question that it's caused real consternation. Whether it does us permanent damage, I think it's too early to say. I think in many ways it depends on what the government decides to do next. The the Biden victory is, I think, in some sense, is a bit of a game changer because although it's worth noting that the Trump administration was also held the view that the um, that a trade deal with the US was contingent on the Good Friday Agreement being respected. There's no question that for Biden, this is a major priority. And so we're going to have to see a reset in our relationship with our friends in Ireland. We're going to have to see a change of course from the government in relation to the needlessly antagonistic relationship with the EU. I think it potentially makes an EU trade deal much more likely and and closer cooperation with the European Union. Um, but it does depend a lot on what the government does next. It's not too late to repair our standing in the world, but they need to start moving quickly. Helen. I mean, you've semi-answered the questions I was going to ask you about the impact of, of a Biden presidency on our negotiations. From outside, maybe you move faster than most people. It feels quite late in the day to me to reset. And I just wonder what you think the government could do that could reset and find as constructive a form of Brexit as is possible by the I mean, in relation to the EU, I think there are 
part of the frustration, I think, on both sides amongst the, you know, the more sensible conservatives in government, of which there are a few um, still left, and um, the, the on the EU side as well. Um, sorry, that's floating. I think um, the, on the, uh, the, there is frustration on both sides because the outstanding issues are not in any sense insurmountable. Um, you know, you cannot allow. Uh, a tra- uh, you know the basis for our cooperation with the European Union to fall apart over a you know small issue around state age, which absolutely can be dealt with, and uh, an argument over fish. I mean, you know these these things have to be resolved, and I think they could very quickly if we were able to to change course. I mean, the trouble is, of course, that as you get towards the end of the transition period, and we've only got weeks to go, the closer you get, the more difficult it becomes for that deal to be a deal that is good for the UK. And I suspect that, therefore, what we're likely to see is a deal a bit like the the agreement that Boris Johnson got earlier this year, in which the government push and push and push until to take it to the wire, and then find that 27 Trumps won and that the deal that we're forced to accept is not as good a deal as we could have got. But from my point of view, the important thing is to have some kind of basis for ongoing cooperation in the future because you can build from there. And um, the fact that foreign uh, affairs, security, defence hasn't even been considered yet is a source of real concern to me and I think to a lot of people. So I think we may see movement. It won't get us to where we need to be, but at least it's a start. Lisa, I think we could happily talk all day about both the EU and our relationship with it. And I can certainly talk for the next three weeks about Biden presidency, but we're going we're gonna to resist that temptation uh, and, and move on. And I really want to ask you about Labour and how you see foreign policy uh, and human rights role in foreign policy. I mean, in, in 1997, there was a kind of famous moment when Robin Cook unveiled in the kind of gilded splendour of the Locarno Room Labour's ethical foreign policy. And uh, we don't need to rehearse how that went for too long. Um, but I'm wondering what lessons you think can be learned from the experience of proclaiming an ethical foreign policy uh, and what role you think human rights should play um, if you were sent to to be foreign secretary, um, if Labour win the next election, so I, I think there are lessons that you can learn, from, particularly from the Robin Cook era. I grew up in in that era and remember his uh, foreign policy with an ethical dimension speech, the responsibility to protect doctrine. Re- remember reading it for the first time as a teenager and thinking this is incredible. Uh, it felt like a very exciting era, but I think there are lessons to be learned too about how that then translated into an approach in government. And there is a view from many of the people who were um, involved in developing that agenda that it didn't really withstand the rigours of government. So there's a great challenge for Labour, I think, to learn not just what we got right in that era, but also what we got wrong. And Stephen Doughty, who is our Shadow Minister for Africa, is leading a piece of work for us at the moment on trying to learn the lessons from that era. I also think there's a tendency in the Labour Party for a, for a radical party, we're incredibly nostalgic and we, there's a tendency to try to look backwards for answers rather than forwards and to reheat various eras from our past. In foreign policy, people look to Bevin um, and they look to Cook, but actually 
we need to look forward to the world that we'll inherit in 2024. Now, I think that security and providing security to our own citizens is therefore the overwhelming priority for a foreign policy for the next Labour government, because the world is increasingly unstable and insecure. And, I'm, you know, if you look over at the Biden administration, the Biden campaign, that there was very much a recognition there too, as we've recognised on the left in Britain, that what you do overseas has to be rooted in consent at home and you have to take people with you. So you have to provide people with security on a domestic agenda and in order that you can go out and advance some of these things across the world. Now, how does that relate to human rights? Well, I guess because we see security very differently in the Labour Party than the, the Tory concept of security, whereas they have intimated that they see national security and human rights as opposing one another. We believe that it's only by giving people those protections, that human dignity, advancing new causes of feminism and environmentalism around the world, which were somewhat lacking from the early years of the last Labour government, um, although became much more prevalent later on. It's only by advancing those causes around the world that you can provide more security at home. Lack of human rights, um, uh, lack of empowerment, lack of democracy, all these things increase insecurity, they increase strife. um, and, And so it's a broader concept of what it means to give people security in an increasingly insecure world. Can I just kind of test that with what it kind of means in real terms in respect to foreign policy and just take it as an example, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So we know that Saudi have been um, funding and participating in uh, flagrant abuses of human rights and uh, international humanitarian law in Yemen. Um, we know that there, there is a lack of promotion in, of human rights within Saudi Arabia domestically. And we know that outside of Yemen, extraterritorially, they're uh, taking part in human rights uh, abuses, for example, the assassination of uh, Khashoggi uh, in the consulate in Istanbul. How's that going to play out in terms of Labour's relations with Saudi Arabia? Um, of course, a huge buyer of British arms. Um, what's what's as a what does security informed by promotion and protection of human rights mean when it comes to an, a, to a, a country that violates fundamental human rights day in day out? So we we've been quite clear for some time before Keir was elected and and since that we don't believe that the UK should be selling arms to Saudi Arabia given the appalling use of those weapons, uh, particularly in the Yemen. Um, and but we've also been very supportive of something that that Dominic Raab has been pressing ahead with the Magnitsky sanctions. It's something that many senior Labour and Tory voices were calling for for quite some time. Because if there isn't an economic cost to abuse of human rights, then there isn't really a response at all. I guess the other thing I would say though is that. I increasingly feel that Britain's lack of consistency around this is a major problem for for us as a country. It diminishes our moral authority around the world and limits our ability to have influence on a global stage. And so we're very keen in the Labour Party to try, as the official opposition, to try to push the government to take a much more consistent approach to democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Um, we've seen 
slightly more of that coming from the Foreign Office, I think, to give the Foreign Secretary credit. I think as a former human rights lawyer, he is trying to bring some kind of consistency to it, but he doesn't seem to have any room for manoeuvre within government itself. Quite often what ends up happening is that the Treasury trumps the Foreign Office in terms of the approach that it takes. And I think for me, this is reflective of a broader trend in Britain over the last decade, or at least certainly since William Hague left office, where uh, our foreign policy approach has been absolutely driven by growth and trade considerations. In fact, I would go as far as to say that for almost a decade now, we haven't really had a foreign policy in Britain. And the the rise of George Osborne really did put pay to that. And it's something that we're really keen to restore. Can I ask you finally about an aspect of foreign policy in relation to human rights, which is um, the principle as to when we intervene militarily, when necessary overseas. I mean, Tony Blair had a famous speech at the Chicago Economic Club, um, in the early days of his premiership, outlining the kind of what became known as the Blair Doctrine of the grounds on which you could, it's proper and appropriate to intervene overseas to prevent crimes against humanity or genocide. Um, of course, many people, I'm afraid me included, would say that that didn't apply to how to 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, um, and somewhat discredited um, the notion of humanitarian intervention. Where's Labour now? Um, so something that we're, we're looking at, Keir is particularly keen that this is something that we get right, as you'd expect with someone with his background. I've learned a lot about international law in the last six months and probably will learn quite a lot more. Um, but I, I think he, like me, is very, very uh, struck by the lasting legacy that Iraq has had for the Labour Party. It hasn't just, you know, prompted, you know, has been the moment at which we've managed to divide over and over again in terms of our legacy around that. It's had huge implications around the world. As someone who's been very involved in the Palestinian cause before I was appointed to this post, the, you know, the, the, the damage that it's done to our relationships in the Middle East and the ability to play a, a role in, in helping to end some of those conflicts has been huge. So we're keen to restore some clarity, keen to restore some consistency. But I also feel very much that Iraq has been allowed in the Labour Party to become an agenda about not intervening and about stepping away from action on a world stage. And as someone who works with child refugees before I came into Parliament, I feel very, very strongly that that would be a, a moral abdication um, and have quite serious consequences for people. I, you know, I came of age marching against the Iraq war, but I also remember Sierra Leone. And these can be game-changing, life-saving interventions. So there's a real... A real challenge for Labour to learn from our past but not be bound by it. And that's that's what informs the work that we're doing at the moment in anticipation of a future Labour government in 2024. Is there a principle that Labour would apply as to when it's legitimate to intervene Sierra Leone, Kosovo on the one hand, um, but illegitimate Iraq uh, on the other? Is, is there going to be a, a principle um, that's clear and transparent that a yeah, project will apply? We're, built, we're building a framework around that at the moment. Start, starting point being 
uh, going back to where we were when we were in government. Um, I don't think that the principled framework that um, Cook and Blair set out was wrong. Uh, but as you rightly said, it then wasn't applied with quite serious consequences. But the, the world is different now. And there's a reality, too, around the, the global multilateral decision-making bodies, the G7, the G20, the UN, none of these are currently producing decisions, decisive action results at the moment. So there's a reality to confront around that. It's something that we've talked to senior Democrats around Joe Biden about because they're also concerned about how you do actually come together as a world and take action when those decision-making processes are either stalled or in many cases blocked by a few key um, states. So there's a there's a reality to grapple with, which is which is different from the context in which the last Labour government was building that agenda. But it's something that we're really determined to get right. And listening to you, it sounds as though um, the UK is unlikely to give up its permanent seat on the Security Council when you're Foreign Secretary. I mean, it, I wouldn't want to come into government with an agenda that diminishes Britain's standing on a world stage and our ability to to have influence. Um, I want us to increase our influence rather than diminish it. I know that this is a particularly contentious issue for other countries and has an impact on how the UK is seen. But where I would start is about rebuilding our um, alliances with those countries. I think Africa is a, a, a continent that isn't very much discussed in UK foreign policy, but you know there are there are alliances to be built. There is damage to be repaired from what has been quite a sorry era for British foreign relations, and that though Africa is a is a good place to look for that um, because there has been real concern about the you know Boris Johnson leadership and what that means. There's been a lack of thinking about how we partnership partner with those countries strategically china has very much filled that vacuum and i think we could start to diffuse some of these arguments around our role in the un by actually starting to to show some respect to those countries and seek equal partnerships rather than a relationship just based on aid lisa thank you so much um, for joining us thanks very much So fascinating discussion um, from uh, Lisa Nandy. Um, Helen, your your takeaway points? Well, I think it's very encouraging that um, the opposition is thinking about the principles which need to underline our approach to a better kind of multilateralism for the future, um, looking at the kinds of alliances we need to build. But I was also very encouraged by the idea that that sense of security um, abroad can't be built unless we have a sense of security um, and respect for human rights at home um, and, and, and needs a consensus. So it does feel as if it's trying to build a, a coherent story behind which or on which we can um, base our future uh, relationships, which are obviously extremely tarnished at this point. Murray. Yes, I also like the reconceiving multilateralism, revisiting the effectiveness of our international institutions in order to try and build back international cooperation. Um, but I also like the reconceiving of 
human rights and ideas like security um, on the domestic front to try and pave the way for that multilateralism internationally being more acceptable uh, domestically and uh, wanting to reach out to Trump and Brexit supporters to remake the case, I think she said, for progressive international cooperation. Um, And I think joining those things up is absolutely crucial. Um, And I think COVID, um, she's mentioned at the outset, is an opportunity to do that because I think it does demonstrate beyond any doubt, the need for international collaboration and cooperation and the importance of security uh, to everybody as a universal value. Uh, just how refreshing to hear a British politician looking out for once rather than just obsessing about what's going on within our own borders. Moving out of our borders again and back to the events of the last week and uh, the US uh, election, we, we know that two things at the moment, one that Biden has won the election, and two, that Trump thinks he's won the election. Uh, And we are moving to an uncertain time. Can I just ask you both first about the kind of legal aspects of this? Um, Trump appears to be launching a raft of legal challenges, some of which are launched out of car parks in Philadelphia, uh, others in different states. Uh, Is this a, a, a serious challenge to the election results, Murray? It doesn't appear on the face of it to be um, a serious challenge because uh, he doesn't seem to be close enough in terms of the margin of votes for any of the legal challenges to make a difference, even if they have a legal basis. Um, The only one which appears to potentially have a legal basis may be in Philadelphia. But even there, the margin of victory that Biden's going to have looks as if it's going to be beyond the reach of any legal challenge. So I don't think there's much prospect of the legal challenges um, succeeding. But one of the things I think is really interesting about the whole exercise is how it shows really that the rule of law is a precondition to democracy in many ways. We actually need a clear legal framework governing elections. Uh, we need access to proper dispute resolution procedures and mechanisms when those when there may be things to dispute. But we also need the constitutional actors, and in particular the president, to um, accept that rule of law framework and the norms which underpin those institutions, which guarantee all those things. And so we've been really watching with horror as we're on the knife edge of that being undermined from the White House. Uh, and just reminded, really, of how democracies depend uh, on these notions of rule of law and legality. Helen, there's still a few weeks and months to go before the handover of power in January. Um, should we be particularly concerned about uh, what an unconstrained president might do? Well, I guess that um, turns on the, on the issues that Murray was just talking about, about whether people are prepared to stay in their proper constitutional um, roles and to, and to recognise what 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 needs to be done. Um, I am not um, enough of an expert to know what the constraints are on the on the president's freedom of action if he decides to sort of take away his ball or world and <laughs> blow it up with him. Um, but I would hope that um, there would be certain constraints on what happens if he you know, literally won't won't concede. Um, there are some signs that. That he may be boxed in a bit, but I won't feel entirely secure in that until the 21st of January, I think, next year. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that if he tries to stay in beyond inauguration day, um, uh, 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 there'll be a chat from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, Gina Haspel from the CIA telling him how the Constitution works. And my guess would be Trump knows that. and would He's such a coward. He'd never put himself in that situation. I'm slightly more concerned about what he might do before that point. I mean, he's already fired overnight the Defence Secretary, uh, uh, Espy. Um, 
sounds as though he's ratcheting up sanctions against Iran to try and scupper the any last chances of, of that deal. Um, it's what else he could or might do that's really troubling. Anyway, watch this space. Thank you, uh, Murray. Thank you, uh, Helen. We'll be back soon with our next episode of the Matrix Law Pod. In the meantime, thank you to Rachel Murray, our producer, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.